Most Americans have a lot of junk. Rich or poor, young or old, it's not difficult to accumulate stuff in this land. And if for, for no other reason this makes the thought of moving very distasteful to most of us, to uproot, to pack up all your things, to relocate is not a lot of fun. But moving is a way of life in our culture. It is something we just have to do from time to time, depending on the circumstances of life. And beyond the physical chore of moving, there are other factors that can make moving even more difficult to us. Saying goodbye to familiar surroundings or to people who we'll, we will dearly miss can make moving almost unbearable. A move can produce many tears, followed by a lump in the throat that hundreds of miles in a U-Haul will not shrink and a heaviness of heart that does not lift for some time. This is particularly true when moving to an unfamiliar and perhaps even difficult environment. So for various reasons, moving can generate apprehension and fear, discouragement, disorientation, frustration, and plenty of second-guessing. But sometimes the circumstances are quite positive, making a move an exciting adventure. I don't mean that fantasy kind of move where people leave a place they should stay as they chase a foolish dream, but I refer to that kind of move which God has made clear is His will, and it's something that you very much want to do. But even then, isn't it true that moving may stir up certain degrees of apprehension and discouragement and disorientation, second-guessing? But at least... The heart is light, and at least it's pumping with excitement. As the plan of God continues to unfold in this book of Genesis, as we come to the 46th chapter, it's another moving day for God's people. We've encountered many of them along the way. If you've been here long enough to be from Genesis 1-1, you'll remember back with us as we have here in this setting encountered numerous moving days. Some were filled with great excitement. Perhaps all with a bit of apprehension and some very tragic. Think of the move out of the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve fell in sin and God expelled them from the Garden. It was moving day, a horrible day. There was the move of Noah into the ark, taking his belongings, his family, the animals, and moving them all into that massive floating U-Haul and saying, we're moving, we're out of here. Or we could think of the move of the uh, descent from Mount Ararat of the Noahic clans. We can think of the move of Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis as God called him out of Mesopotamia and said, leave everything that you know and go to a land to which I will show you. We can think of moving day for Lot and Abram as they separated ways. Or moving day for Lot as he fled Sodom under tragic circumstances. You can think of Isaac's numerous moves and of Jacob himself moving to Padan Aram for a season in his life to find a family and to find fortunes, as we say. There's the move in Jacob's life of coming back to the promised land. Remember the move on the day that he knew he would meet Esau that night before, that very concerning moment as he was coming to meet his brother. It was Peniel. Then there was the move to Shechem, and all seemed so well until that great debacle there in that city, and it was time to move again. And now we've seen Isaac, or Jacob rather, come to Hebron in the land of Palestine, and it is now as we come to chapter 46, moving day once again. Moving day in Genesis has often produced great apprehension and fear and confusion, Perhaps no move was filled with any more sense of hope and excitement than this one. I might throw in there that probably the move to get off the ark was a very exciting day as far as moves go. You can imagine that. But I think this was a very exciting move for Jacob. Among all the moves in the book of Genesis, this one ranks also among one of the most significant. Think of the significance. There's the call to Abram in chapter 12 to move to Canaan. Let's go back, if you'll keep your finger there in 46, all the way back to chapter 15, a passage we've looked at numerous times as it very much, it's very important to our understanding of the move here to Egypt. But remember, many, many years ago, two generations earlier to Abram, 
God said in chapter 15, in his vision to Abram, chapter 15 and verse 13. Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So there's that promise long ago as we come to genesis 46 now god is moving that embryonic nation of israel into egypt ending what we refer to as the patriarchal period what's the patriarchal period we have these fathers these patriarchs of israel who are living in the land of canaan abraham isaac and Jacob. We come to the close of that period now as God shifts his people from Canaan to Egypt where they will grow into a great nation as he has prophesied in chapter 15. So we see that this is a big move. It's a big move not only for Jacob as an individual, as a person, it's a very big move for what God is doing in his plan. Get Israel to Egypt. It's also interesting to note as we come to Exodus chapter 1, where does Exodus 1 start? It starts with the very genealogy that we find here in Genesis 46. The genealogy of those Israelites who make this trip to Egypt. Connecting the two books. In other words, God is at work. And the revelation that we will find later in this chapter is the last revelation until God speaks to Moses, at least recorded revelation, God does not speak again in the pages of Scripture until he speaks to Moses to bring the people out of Israel. So this is a very important, crucial part of the puzzle as God puts together salvation history in this book of Genesis. Now in Genesis 45, you'll remember Jacob receives a report from his sons that Joseph is living. His heart is stunned, it's paralyzed to think that this is actually the truth. Finally, he comes to realize that it is the truth and Joseph urging him to leave the famine that it will last for five more years, Jacob moves to do just that. But the greatest motivation for Jacob is not food. It is the prospect of seeing his son. Notice the last two verses of chapter 45. 45, 27, And when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts... Joseph had sent to carry him back. The spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. In this first section then of chapter 46, we see this grand exodus from the land of Canaan. Beginning first of all with Jacob setting out from Canaan. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Jacob sets out. This might not help us as much as we might like here as far as seeing, thank you, Mary, seeing uh, Egypt to the south. You can get your hand on it. Loves to walk away. Um, this quick. But you'll see the city of Hebron, there at the, on the south of um, this map of Palestine, and of course, Egypt being off to the south and west. As far as we know, Jacob is apparently still living in the valley of Hebron, according to chapter 5, verse 35, rather, in verse 27, 37, 14, also has him there. So as you can see on the map, about 20 miles uh, to the southwest is Beersheba. From here, he journeys south then to the extreme edge of the promised land of Canaan to the town of Beersheba. We hear Beersheba all the time in the Old Testament. When you think of Israel geographically, when you think of the United States geographically, what do we see, say? Sometimes you hear the phrase from sea to shining sea or from uh, California to New York Island or something like that. We, we have these little markers to say, in other words, the whole land. When you hear the phrase, uh, hear that similar phrase in the Old Testament, what is it? It's from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. This is the end of Canaan, so to speak. And it is very important that Jacob stops here. Thank you, that sh should be good. But you'll see his, little, his journey here from Hebron down to Beersheba. Now what do we know about Beersheba? Not simply that it's a later geographical mark of the southern extent of Canaan, that's significant, 
But chapter 21, if you can remember all the way back there, you've been in this church for a little while, if, we, if we've been through that. But you remember in your own reading of Scripture, chapter 21, what happens there? It is here at Beersheba that Abram, Abraham entered a peace treaty with the Philistine king Abimelech, with his army commander there as well, Philco. You remember that? The reason is what? The reason is that these Philistines said, God is blessing you, Abraham. And we want to make sure that we line up on the right side. Could we please cut a covenant together, have a treaty here together, because we can see that God's hand is uniquely upon you. On that day, you remember that they, there is a, a blessing there, God's blessing on Abraham, Abraham's blessing in a sense then on the Philistines and the king Abimelech. On that day, there was also a dispute over a well. If you remember that, the Philistines had captured this well that Abraham had dug, and what took place in that event then was through this agreement, they, they came with seven sheep, Abram came with seven sheep and said, this is my well, this attests to the fact that this is my well. And so the place was called Beer, which is the Hebrew well, and Sheva, which is, can mean two things, either oath or sheep. So it's the, or, or seven rather, so it's the well of seven or the well of the oath. Either one fits fine. That was Abraham's situation here in Beersheba. And what did he do commemorating the blessing of God and peace with the Philistines? If you remember, he planted a tree. This is a tree in a land he doesn't own, but a land that God has promised to him. He plants a tree to say, here God has met with us, has uniquely blessed us. Beersheba plays into the text in an important way later, also chapter 26 in the next generation, and that is Isaac. Isaac faces famine. Note that and remember that. Isaac faces famine in the land of Israel, but in a vision, God tells Isaac to do what? Don't go to Egypt, stay here. Remember, Egypt is not, does not suffer from famine like the other countries because of the Nile and the irrigation there. It doesn't rain much at all in Egypt, but it doesn't matter. With the Nile and irrigation, they can have crops no matter what the situation is. So Isaac is just naturally bent toward going toward Egypt, as Abram had done in the case of famine. But God says, don't go. You stay here in the land, and I will make you very fruitful. And he does. Isaac obeys God, he plants, and there is great abundance to his, in his planting. And so in obedience to God, he stays in Philistia, eventually settling where? Beersheba. At Beersheba, where God appears to Isaac and reiterates to him the promises made to Abraham. In response, Isaac builds an altar to the Lord and sacrifices to God there. Later, Abimelech, the Philistine king seeks a treaty with Isaac. Why? Same reason as with Abraham. We see that God is blessing you so uniquely. And so Isaac swears an oath with the Philistines. Peace in Beersheba once again. Beersheba now, no lambs in this occasion, can be called the well of oath. Is it an accident? Can you put that all together and say, well, no big deal, he just happened to be passing by here. You know, it was lunchtime and the Super America sign caught his eye and he pulled over into Beersheba and said, let's stop here today. This is a purposeful journey. I don't think there's any way that we can see it in another way. He's stopping here for a reason. Jacob is leaving Hebron, but he stops at Beersheba. Why? To identify with his fathers at the very place where they were both blessed by Gentile powers. He is just about to enter into Egypt. It's a frightening place for foreigners. Even though his son Joseph is there and he's heard all of this story, this is Egypt, and he will be meeting the Pharaoh. I think a second reason for stopping here at Beersheba is to identify with Isaac's altar. By offering sacrifices here, as we note there in verse 1 of chapter 46, offering sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac, he is doing so, we would assume, on the altar that Isaac has built, or at least in that place where Isaac built an altar. He's identifying with what? With the promise of God for an offspring and the promise of God for this land. And so we might wonder if Jacob doesn't leave Canaan with a little bit of apprehension here. He stops on the edge to offer sacrifice, to identify with his people, and perhaps to seek the will of God. Remember his family history? How did it go for Abram when he went down into Egypt? 
it was not a good situation. Remember that whole story as Pharaoh takes Sarah and he almost loses his wife and it would appear that the promises of God to Abram and Sarai will be jeopardized because Pharaoh takes his wife. It didn't go well for them there. It didn't go well for, well, I shouldn't say it didn't go well for Isaac, but Isaac was actually stopped by God from going there, chapter 26. And he was blessed in the land. Now there's this message from Joseph that the famine will go on five years. You cannot live in Canaan. But God has brought abundance out of famine before, chapter 26. Perhaps he intends to do so now. I think Jacob, if we can read between the lines a little bit and realize there is some conjecture here, I think he's seeking the face of God. He's identifying with God and he's saying, are you in this move? Perhaps he's unsure. Will there really be these five more years of famine? Well, God promises then to accompany Jacob. We know what God is doing in the big picture as he's brought it out in chapter 15, but notice verse two, verses 2 and 3, God promises to accompany Jacob on the journey. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. So God had appeared to Jacob at other times, at chapter 28 at Bethel, chapter 32 at Peniel, chapter 35 at Bethel again. God tells Jacob here to go to Egypt. And after this, as I mentioned, the next record of Revelation will be chapter, uh, will be in Exodus 430 years later when God appears to Moses and says, bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. So this vision from God in chapter 46 is of extreme importance. It is a vision confirming that God desires for Israel to go into Egypt. And it confirms that God desires for Israel to go into slavery. We need to have within our thinking about God that category. He permits them to walk into Slavery and difficulty and trial of the worst sort, but he has a plan. Others will carry out the sin in that plan, but God will use that sin, permit that sin to accomplish his purposes. So he encourages Jacob, saying that I will be with you. Verse 4, I will go down to Egypt with you. I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Don't be afraid, Jacob. I'm going with you. I know what is going on, and I give you my blessing to go there. Now, he's going to meet Joseph. After 22 years, God promises that he'll meet his son. And so like the glory cloud that would later lead the Israelites in the desert, what does Jacob do? He simply follows when God says to go. I'll bring you back. Now, Jacob's going to come back on a cart in a coffin, so to speak. That's how he, his body will come back to Canaan. That's not the point here. I think here we have that typical Hebrew situation of moving from the individual to the community without wrinkle. And so the reference here is to the people of Israel will come back to Canaan. You will come back to this land. Now back to Joseph, or back to Jacob, Joseph will close your eyes. That means that he will put his fingers physically on his eyelids and will close them in death, which was the chore and the, and the privilege of the oldest son or the closest relative, and in fact, among uh, many Jews to this very day, that is the custom, that that one closest to them or in that right position will put their hands on their eyelids and close their eyelids after the individual has expired. And that will be the case with you. In other words, you will be with Joseph to the last day of your life and he will close your eyes. It's a great promise of encouragement from God to Jacob. Now we find that God accompanies Jacob in these verses. We notice then, beginning at verse 5, that Jacob's family will accompany him down to Egypt. Beginning at verse 5, we have the practical details of that as his sons transport him and his possessions. Verse 5, Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. They also took with them their livestock and the, and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan, and Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt. Jacob is 130 years old here, so he's 
appropriately placed, not on a donkey, but on a cart with the women and children. He's a very aged man. They transport all of his possessions, his flocks, his possessions. It's a sizable undertaking. Remember the carts that Joseph had sent? They're probably piled high and loaded with people. The flocks are many and are attended by Jacob's many sons and grandsons. Pharaoh had told them to leave their possessions behind. We don't know if the family just doesn't want to impose on his hospitality, or perhaps they don't want to get rid of their junk as they're moving, and that's a disease that's plagued many people along the way, hasn't it, as they're moving. We don't know why, but they bring all the stuff with them that is theirs. Off they go, Jacob accompanied by God, accompanied by his family. Now, at verse 7, we have also the reference here, setting us up for the genealogy to follow. Verse 7, he took with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons, his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. And then these, verse 8, are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants, who went down into Egypt. So we have reference here to his sons, his grandsons, his daughters, his granddaughters, everyone. Absent there, did you notice his, his wives? Apparently, they have all died. Perhaps they're just not mentioned because they're factored in below, but when you come up with the count, they're not counted. And so apparently all of his wives are dead by this point. And he goes down with his sons and grandsons, daughters and granddaughters. We only know of Dinah as his daughter. We're not sure if plural daughters is a reference to other daughters. The text is, there's several indicators on both sides. It's very difficult to know. But let me say this, if you were ever comparing this list with two other similar lists in the book, in the, in the Old Testament, you'll find all kinds of discrepancies and difficulties. Let me say something about that. We have to understand that genealogical lists in the Old Testament are highly thematic. They are seldom, if ever intended to be precise family trees. I, I don't know of a genealogy that is, that's a precise family tree where every individual is included. You might have that for a short section of a genealogy, or depending on how the genealogy goes, you may have all the sons of one man listed, but they're not genealogical trees as we think of them, all carefully worked out. I mean, if, if, if you left off great-great-grandpa Andy, you know, back there, the whole family would be up in arms. You can't do that in our setting. You can't leave a guy off of the tree. You might want to with some of them, but you can't. You've got to get everybody's name in it. That is not how the Old Testament uh, genealogies work at all. So ha you have to understand that usually it's the number of individuals that's more important than the actual individuals that are there. That is, I should say it this way, rather than including all the individuals, they just are looking for a number. What's the number here? The number here is 70. And you can come up with 70 any way you want as far as a Hebrew is concerned. If you don't have enough sons, you throw in grandsons. If you don't have enough grandsons, you throw in daughters. However you come up with it, you are making a point on the basis of the number, and the number here is 70. We must also understand, then, that the word son does not always mean actual son the way that we take it. It can be grandson or great-grandson or great-great-grandson, and it will just use the phrase son and miss all of the intervening generations. That very adept at that. Now, remember, they had other records that kept these things alive, their family trees alive, but they just don't find their place in the biblical text for obvious reasons. They'd be, I mean, we'd have to carry our Bible in a wheelbarrow. But it gives us here what is important. And what's important here is that there are 70 who will go down. Now, here's another thing. This will challenge the Western mind deeply. But you can also say that a son went down with his father into Egypt when the kid's not even born yet. That's possible because, euphemistically, he's in the loins of his father. That means that if his father was there, he was there. He just isn't there physically yet, but he's essentially there in his father. So with all of that understood, for any that are minded that way to be concerned about these things, these are very loose, free-flowing lists. You'll find different spellings. In other lists, you'll find people missing. That's not because there's a mistake in the other list. It's just because that's how a Hebrew genealogy works. We find then, with all that in view, verse 8, we start with Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, the son of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohab, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. Kind of an interesting uh, addition there. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. We're familiar with those words as they play out so heavily in the rest of the Pentateuch. 
because from here will come the um, uh, priesthood, the Levites, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan had died in the land of Canaan, the sons of Perez, Hezron, and Hamel. What's the uniqueness there? We have here grandsons listed. Only two sons in all of this will have a grandson listed. I can guarantee to you that there were many, many grandsons, but there's these two only that are mentioned in the text for purposes of the chronicle. Then verse 13, the sons of Issachar, Tolapula, Joshub, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Zerah, Elan, and Jahleel. These were the sons of Leah, born to Jacob and Padan Aram, besides his daughter Dinah. These sons and daughters of his were 33 in all. Now, daughters is only one daughter listed. The word phrases, again, are very uh, loose, free-flowing phrases. We'll get to a little bit on Dinah here below. But you'll notice in verse 15 that there are not men. She's the first woman that is mentioned. There will be one other two others if you include a wife who's not counted. But the number here is 33. Now obviously, Ur and Onan didn't make this trip, right? They were killed by God because of their wickedness. We're, we're reminded of that here. So how do we come up with 33? There are all kinds of suggestions. I think the Hebrews knew exactly how you come up with 33. It's pretty tough for us. But you can subtract Ur and Onan and add Dinah and add Jacob and play around with it like that, but it really does not matter a lot. What matters is the number 33. That's the number that they are looking for here. Secondly, then, is a list of Zilpah's sons in verse 16. Sons of Gad, Zephon, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, Areli, the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishva, Ishvi, and Bariah. Their sister was Sarah the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. There again is the, only the second place where grandsons are listed, and you notice here a reference to a sister. Is that the only sister? We don't know. It seems highly doubtful that there were this many boys around and this few girls. But for reasons that we have lost, the reference here to Sarah. These then were the children born to Jacob by Zilpah, whom Laban had given to his daughter Leah, 16 in all, and that again is the important point, the number 16. Now we go to the sons of Rachel, of Jacob's wife, the sons of Jacob's wife Rachel. And you'll notice there a distinctive reference in comparison with the other wives, drawing attention to the fact that she was Jacob's favored wife. Verse 19, then is Joseph and Benjamin. Verse 20, in Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. She's the only wife that is mentioned, drawing attention to Joseph's importance. Verse 21, the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, and Hupim. I'm kind of wondering if those were twins. <laughs> you have a, talk about a tough time keeping those names apart. Mupim and Hupim. But, uh, and then there's Ard, which we assume his middle name wasn't Vark, right? <laughs> but, uh, some strange Hebrew names here for us, obviously. But now, it's a little bit of a problem here that Benjamin's only about, apparently, 30 years of age. Give or take a little bit, but he's a young man. And in that context, in that day, it would be very unusual for a 30-year-old man to have 10 sons. Uh, extremely unusual, almost unprecedented. And so we would assume possibly that these, again, euphemistically came down to Egypt in his loins. That is, some were born in Egypt. Uh, that shouldn't trouble us. It really is, doesn't matter. If we were there, we'd know. What we do know is that there's a lot of people that are going down. And what is most important is verse 22, that the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob were 14 in all. Then we have Bilhah's sons in verse 23, the son of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Gunai, Jezer, and Shillam. These were the sons born to Jacob by Bilhah, whom Laban had given to his daughter Rachel, seven in all. So verse 26 gives us the summary. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons. The direct descendants is a phrase which is the ones coming out of the thigh of him. Again, euphemistically for the physical source of his children. How do we come up with the number 66? We have no real idea. There are ways of arriving that. You can subtract Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim, giving you 67, not 66. And then one possible solution would be to add Dinah, 
uh, or Jacob, subtract Ur and Onan. Putting it all together in some way, they come up with 66. We really don't know, but what matters is the final total, verse 27, with the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, which would indicate that you're not supposed to count them. The members of Jacob's family, which went to Egypt, were 70 in all. What this is intending to say to us in a Western setting, which is a little tough, is to say this is a complete family. This is the complete representation of the people of God. Sevens abound. And the Hebrews, with numerology we can't always understand, did seem to use the, uh, the number seven as a sense of completion and of fullness. It's just, when you see the arbitrariness of these lists, have you caught that? I mean, there's couple of women put in here. There's a two sons only have their grandsons mentioned. There's a couple that have died. There's an arbitrary list here. It's, it's, it's not everybody. They're trying to come up with the number 70. Not only that, but consider Rachel has 14 sons. 14 that are listed. That's seven times two. Bilhah has seven children. Leah and Bilhah together have, this gets a little freaky, but they have seven times seven children, 49 children. Gad, now you really want to get esoteric. Here we go. You ready for this? Gad is in the seventh position, and if you give numbers to the letters in his name, it comes out the seven. G is the third letter in the Hebrew alphabet. D is the fourth letter. Three plus four is seven. The total number is 70. Obviously, again, a seven, seven times ten. What is the point of all of those numbers? Is it just pure coincidence? I don't think so. I think it is a picture of a complete nation, a microcosm of the nation of Israel that will come. And if you want to really go to seed on this point, there are in the table of nations in Genesis 10, 70 nations. So we have 70 individuals of the Israelite people connecting to the 70 nations that will be blessed through the Israelites in the genealogy in chapter 10, connecting those two genealogies. The important point for us here is God is doing something. He knows what he is doing. He's moving this family there for a very specific reason, to accomplish his purposes. He wants them in Egypt, and he is forming them now into a great nation. So we have this grand exodus from Canaan. And that leads to the grand reunion in Egypt. Verse 28, Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen when they arrived in the region of Goshen. You need to think here of a big operation. We've got wagons and flocks and lots of people. You don't just take a wrong turn and just turn around. So he sends Judah there, and isn't that interesting? He singles out Judah for leadership once again. The one who negotiated the sale of Joseph into slavery is the one who is now going to connect father and son again. For 22 long years, think of this, for 22 long years, Jacob has not held his beloved son in his arms. And Joseph has long forgotten what his father's face looked like. But in, this, in his speeding chariot, we see Joseph running toward the caravan. Joseph, verse 29, had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and he wept for a long time. This is no longer Pharaoh's prime minister. This is a boy running to see his dad. As they approach one another, the text uses a word which is used elsewhere in Genesis only in reference to the appearance of God. He appeared before him. It was, in a sense, an epiphany. Now, we don't know. As the NIV adds the word father here, you see, might see the marginal note there in verse 29 at the end. It says that, that his father threw his arms around his father. It just really says his arms around him. But I think the NIV probably has this right, that the focus here is on Joseph and his weeping. Here is father and son whose hearts have been bound up in each other for 17 years and then torn apart now for 22 Reunited, what would you expect? But tears of rejoicing. 22 years ago, Jacob had wept in bitter travail, thinking his son was dead. Now Joseph weeps with joy to see once again his father alive. 
There's no need for words. It's time to cry. And to do so, the text says, for a long time. He cried on the neck, the shoulders of his brothers. Now he cries, the text says, for a long time on the shoulders of his father. How many days and nights languishing in slavery and in prison must Joseph have longed to gain strength from his father's warm embrace and his words of confidence. Now at last. Now at last. This is not Zaphonath Paneah, prime minister of Egypt. This is son Joseph running to embrace his dad. How rich are the rewards of those who serve the purposes of God and wait for his timing. So here's Joseph. In our day, he's in his absolutely, completely outfitted Lexus, driving to meet his father on this uh, whatever, U-Haul or something, but this old caravan of shepherds come, but here they embrace with all of that set aside, and it's father and son once again. Verse 30 says, Israel said to Joseph, now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. What does that mean? I think that hits us in the right way, doesn't it? I, I, I could die right now and be fulfilled. I could die right now and be absolutely happy. Uh, he's going to go on and live for 17 more years with Joseph. Kind of interesting, 17 years at the front of their life and 17 years at the end. But he's just saying, I am absolutely fulfilled and at peace. I have seen my son Joseph. He had given up all hope of that long ago. He knows that God has brought him to this place in life. And he rejoices. Now we assume further discussion here, but... Certainly, there's much catching up to do, but Joseph now gets down to business. He knows that God has brought him to this place in life in order to save the lives of God's chosen people. If you need to, go back to 45.5, 45.5, where Joseph says very clearly, it is because I was sent here in order to save lives. That's why God has sent me here. Verse 8 of that same chapter. It is not you who sent me here, but God. Now Joseph so to speak, rolls up his sleeves and gets down to business. We've seen the grand exodus from Canaan, the grand reunion in Egypt, and now we find grand provision for Israel. Think in big terms of the the providence of God and what he's doing here with this family as we go through very quickly, beginning at verse 31. Joseph plans the meeting with Pharaoh and coaches his brothers, beginning at verse 31. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You shall answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Or we could read there probably a little better translation, abomination to the Egyptians. What does all that mean? Ever the administrator, Joseph orchestrates the pending meeting with Pharaoh, and he says, guys, listen to me now. I know Pharaoh, I know how he operates, I know the protocol, here's the deal. He's going to ask you what you do. He's going to ask you what your occupation is. He may want to find a job for you. He may want to simply note that you aren't just going to leech off of the system here. He wants to know that you have a job. When you meet him, you need to tell him, we're shepherds, we've always been shepherds. That's what we do. We brought our flocks, our fathers were shepherds, we're shepherds, we're shepherds. And here's the reason why. Because if, if, if you can let him know that, he may let you live in Goshen, where you are right now. You will be free to go back to Israel. You will not be assimilated into the Egyptian culture, but we will remain as our people, the people of God in Goshen because there's this kind of neat little thing that's working for us here, and that's that the Egyptians see shepherds as an abomination. We don't know. Sadly, archaeological documents have not given us insight into what this means. You remember, Joseph couldn't eat with his brothers because to eat with Israelites or Canaanites was an abomination to the Egyptians. 
This is a little bit of guesswork on my part, but there does seem to be a consistent idea that the Egyptians were extremely clean and neat people. They were shaven, they were always clean, they, were, they had a fetish with, with living and life and health and cleanliness. And it might be something like an Egyptian in the most powerful nation on earth settled into great cities would think of shepherding and Canaanites like city people today might think when they drive past a hog farm. There's people who live in that, and you're gagging, and you can't wait to get down the road two miles to get out of that what is very light compared to what it is in the barn. But there's maybe that's something of the idea here is that they just they I mean they're glad somebody takes care of sheep. As a matter of fact, Pharaoh himself has many flocks. They're glad somebody does that, but that's a job for slaves. That's not a job for an Egyptians, and we don't mess around with that kind of thing. That seems to me to be the basic idea of the abomination here, but in some sense of ritual or in some sense of just cultural aversion, they don't like shepherds. They don't want to be around shepherds. They don't want to have anything to do with shepherding. So that will permit us to stay in Goshen. If you make it clear, this is what we do. This is what we've always done. We're not looking for a change. We're just looking for your grace to help us out here. So Joseph then, with that coaching now, presents his brothers to Pharaoh at chapter 47. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He plants the seed, so to speak, in Pharaoh's mind. They're already there, Pharaoh, in Goshen. Verse 2, he chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. The Hebrew is very problematic here. Five may be several and he presented them from the edges of his brothers, which may mean something like he just chose five men at random. We don't know, but he presents these individuals. Now, what does Pharaoh do? Exactly what Joseph said he was going to do. Verse 3, Joseph asked the brothers, what is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds. They replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers are. Some have thought that the brothers are saying something different than what Joseph said. I don't think so. I think they're saying exactly what Joseph wanted them to say. They're following the plan. Verse 3, we're shepherds. Verse 4, they also said to him, We have come to live here a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. So following Joseph's advice, they appeal only to Pharaoh's mercy to grant them the opportunity to pasture there. They wisely and diplomatically do not refer back to his earlier promise to do so. They're just resting in Pharaoh's kindness to them. Now Pharaoh says, verse 5, as he instructs Joseph, he says to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. And the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. This is the best thing that could possibly happen. I mean, think if you had a friend whose dad, if this is, I know it's a little probably masculine here, but just work with me, ladies, all of you. Your, your friend, his dad has the best wood shop anywhere. I mean, it's got every tool and gadget and thing, and, and you just can't wait to get in that workshop with your friend someday. And your friend takes you with him and presents you to his dad, says, my friend would like to come with me into the wood shop. And his dad says not, sure, let's go on in. But he says, sure, here's the keys. You guys go on in. I mean, that's what's happening here. It's, yes, the land of Egypt is before you, Joseph, and I'm not going to hang around and try to dictate all that happens with your family. You do what you want to do. Here's the keys to the kingdom. Put them where you want to put them. Give them what you want to give them. I open to you the land of Egypt. And so then, verse 7, Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. So the brothers are brought in. There is settlement now. There is a free offer to settle in Egypt. And now, at the climactic event here, just a few more verses, if you'll bear with me, Joseph stands before Pharaoh with Jacob at his side, presenting him before Pharaoh, literally standing him in front of Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now you'll see a marginal note there that says that he greeted him. That's a fair translation. But I think there's something more going on than simple greeting here. I think this has to tie back to the promise to Abraham. What was that promise? 
Those nations that bless you, I will bless. Those that you bless, I will bless. This is a Israelite, the people of God, the chosen, blessing the nations as Jacob stands here and blesses Pharaoh. Presented here by his son, Pharaoh asked him then, verse 8, how old are you? And that's a kind of crazy question it seems like, but maybe we pick up a little bit from the idea knowing that the Egyptians were very given to interest in how old a person was. They wanted to live forever. And the uh, pharaohs particularly were concerned about living as long as they could possibly live. And he looks at this old guy and says, you're old. How old are you? What's your secret? Or something like that. I would imagine the life that Jacob's lived, he probably looked older than the 130 that he was. And Pharaoh says to him, how old are you? Jacob said, verse 9, to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Abraham was 175 when he died, Isaac 180. I think that Jacob probably also indicates here that to some degree he's had a stiff neck against God for a long time. There's been many trials in his life, and it has been a life of trial. There's been many difficult days for him. There was the Esau thing. There was a running away to Laban and running into Laban. There was a penile event as he uh, prepared to meet Esau again. There was the Shechem issue and the Joseph situation, having lost him and the famine. It's been a tough life for Jacob. He doesn't stand before Pharaoh and say, I've known the blessing of God in a unique way. He has, but he also says it's been very difficult. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and he went out from his presence. That is such an important phrase. We see it again. I don't think it's just saying goodbye, but I think it's blessing him as God has called his people to be a blessing to the nations. Walkie writes, while showing great respect and sensitivity to Pharaoh, Jacob never bows his knee to the Egyptian. But instead, as the greater, he blesses the lesser. Now that's only from God's eyes. Here is this man, the most powerful on earth, with all wealth and security and strength. And here is Jacob essentially begging for food. But he blesses Pharaoh. Now, the Israelites reading this 400 plus years later didn't miss that point, believe me. They knew that God had chosen them. Isaac's old age, writes Walkie, shamed his youth, but Jacob's redeemed his. There's a chance in old age to recover spiritually. And what an act of faith this is, I believe, on Jacob's part that he blesses the Pharaoh. Now, Joseph then settles his family in Egypt, and that's the important point as we close on that. We see here in verse 11, Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. Now, Ramses wasn't named that yet, but the people reading the book know where that is, and so Moses uses that phrase. And the important point here is that Israel is cared for in Egypt. Preservation of the chosen nation in this unique way. Israel sits comfortably in that place where they will grow into a great nation. They are sufficiently isolated and sufficiently provided for. They will not integrate with the Egyptians in Goshen, but will remain as detestable shepherds apart, but they will be provided for over these years. And here God will prosper them. Here he will protect them even through great trial to become the nation that he designs. And so this is a very successful move for Israel in the big picture and in the narrow picture for Jacob himself. Physically, what a tremendous benefit Jacob has received here through God's providence. And in God's plan, we see what he is doing as he provides for the nation of Israel to remain distinct and to grow into a great nation. We learn so much about God here, don't we? God is faithful to his people. Keep it in your mind and don't forget it because circumstances sometimes tempt us to forget it. He is faithful to his people. He is the kind of God who guides, who provides, and gives direction with our very best interest in view. God is not unconcerned, though it may seem that way at times. He guides and provides with your best interest in view if you are his child. 
So what did he say to Isaac in famine? Stay put. I want you right here. Don't go to Egypt. What does he say to Jacob in famine? Go to Egypt. He guides people differently in different circumstances and even in same circumstances, but he provides and he cares. He guides. God is always working his wise plan, we learn as well, even in the midst of confusing and troubling circumstances. Remember Jacob's words, or Joseph's words. God sent me here to preserve life. God is always working in the details of your life to accomplish his purposes, though we may not always know what they are. There's also certainly many lessons here about moving. We find a lesson, I think, about determining when to move. The key is, is God in it. Isaac wanted to go, and God said no. Jacob wanted to go, and God said yes. We need to determine, will God go with me? Does he want me to go? There's so many people who move foolishly, and so many people who stay foolishly. We need to seek the will of God as to where he wants us to go. And that's not, there's no list to give you, and there's no secret message to find God's will as to where he wants you. But we do need to seek his will. Not stiffen our neck and go the way we want. To stay when we should move and to move when we should stay. We need to seek the will of God. Is he in it? And how wonder, has God moved you? Is he moving you now? Not necessarily physically. Maybe that's part of the equation for you, physical location. But I think of many different types of moves. There's a move in position. There's a move in occupation, in health, in relationships a move in circumstances where the way that life was changed and you're facing a new situation. We're encouraged here on the basis of the life of Jacob to move on and to move forward for the glory of God in the confidence that he will provide in his way and his time. He will provide. That's God's business and that's God's character. We can trust his hand as he changes the circumstances because he never changes. Let's bow for a word of prayer together. Our Father, we pray that you will teach us what you'd have us to know as we consider your provision, your guidance, your providential working through time. We thank you for this privilege that we've had to search your word. I plead for your people that the word of God would settle down in their hearts and that the spirit of God would teach and that you would guide us into your way. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.